Welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer, and in this episode, we bring you Nikki Giovanni's recent keynote address to the Appalachian Writers Workshop this summer. Nikki Giovanni is an award-winning, prolific poet, activist, and educator. She was born in Knoxville in 1943 and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio, but spent every summer back home in Knoxville with her grandparents. She now makes her home in Blacksburg, Virginia, where she's taught at Virginia Tech since 1987. Each July, writers gather at the Heinemann Settlement School for the Appalachian Writers Workshop. This year was the 41st annual workshop, and Giovanni delivered the keynote address. You you, you can see why they don't let me sing. (laughs) I'm so glad to be here. Uh, this, do I need to be introduced? I'm Nikki. <laughs> and I'm so glad to be, to be here and, and to be at the Settlement House and to be at the Writers' Workshop. We in Appalachia, and I just mentioned it, I doubt that it will actually make the news because there are many things that I say that don't make the news, but some of them are vicious, but this was a nice thing. I just said that the Appalachian people are the nicest white people in America. But I... <laughs> I'm pretty sure they'll take that off, but I think, (laughs) well, we are. And I live now, of course, in, um, not of course, in Virginia. I'm a Tennessean by birth, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be uh, uh, recruited by Dr. Fowler to Virginia. And uh, Jenny, I'm always laughing because I was at a place sort of like this. It was crowded. I said it was Pittsburgh. She said it was uh, Cleveland or something. I don't know. It was someplace. And I looked out, you know how you look, and I looked out, and someone was smiling at me. And you know how you see a smile? And it actually turned out to be Jenny. I was married to my mother, which is a poem I'm gonna read in this book, because I definitely was married to mother. And a couple of weeks later, we got a letter. And you know how you get a letter and you know that you've seen this letter, if you felt this letter. And I thought, this is from the lady who smiled at me. And I opened the letter up, and it was. And she said, would you like to go come to Virginia Tech? We'd like to nominate you for whatever it was. And so I went to ask Mommy, because you can't leave your partner. You know what I'm saying? So I said to Mommy, would you like to go to Virginia? And Mommy was a Christian, and, and she grew up in the AME church. She said, whether thou goest. And so 
which was the right thing because I love mommy, she loved me, and she loved Jenny also once we got to know her. And so we all moved to Virginia and we've been in Virginia Tech. So when I lost mommy, I was very fortunate I didn't lose mommy, mommy passed, but that's a normal situation. If you're born, you're gonna die. And <laughs> it is, it makes you unhappy, but it's the reality. And so when mommy did die, or when mommy, I, I think that the term we need really is a transition because death is like I have weeds in my yard and they die and they're not coming back. But when you have things that come back, there's a transition. And I think people come back. I think that we probably most of us, many of us in this room are very young. so this is a waste of time, but for those of us who are my age, well, they don't understand it, but for those of us who are my age, we have had, our grandmothers have spoken, and you know, we have felt somebody has come to do something, so we know it's a, uh, it's a transition. So when mommy transitioned, I was very fortunate because I had Jenny, and so, you know, you're very lucky to always, and I would say that to anybody in the room, if you got somebody, keep them, and make sure they smile at you every now and then. I, uh, I wrote, I, I wanted to share a poem. It's called, um, let's see if I can find it. I'm always looking at you. It's called, um, I Married My Mother. And it's true, my father was a fool. And I don't know if any of y'all, <laughs> he was, have fathers who are fools. But um, if you do, you kind of know what, 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 it was like, and uh, Gus was just, Gus was just crazy, and I don't know why, I've been trying to understand what makes, not just my father, but any of those men a fool, because it has to be something that's running through, it's something they ate or drank, or I, I don't know what it is. I know that, uh, in all fairness to the gentleman in the room, I mean no harm, but you know, the penis is in trouble, because, <laughs> Probably none of us in this room, at least I'm 75, none of us my age have their tonsils anymore because Mother Nature recognized we don't need the tonsils, right? Tonsils, am I right? <laughs> well, the penis is just another gland and if y'all don't know how to take care of it, you're gonna wake up one morning, you know, honey, I lost my dick and that'll be the end of that. <laughs> I just thought I'd warn you, for those of you who are. I think you have to be careful about those things. Well, Gus was crazy, as I said, and it got to the point that, and, and I'm not happy or proud, but if you ask me what was, what was I doing at 11 o'clock on Saturday, I, and even I have an older sister, she, she was friendly. And Gary always had friends, so she would go and spend the weekend you know, with her friends, she would pack up and, and go and spend the, 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 the she'd Friday and Saturday, and she'd come home sometime on Sunday. Well, I always felt that, that I should stay home, I guess, and protect mommy. I don't know what I thought I was doing. But if you ask me what was going on on Saturday at 11 o'clock, I was listening to my father hit my mother. And it got to a point that I knew that I couldn't 
function well if I, if I allowed that to happen. And so fortunately, I had a godmother, and she left me, she passed and left me $50 when that was real money. And I took that and bought a ticket to Knoxville where I was born and went to see grandmother. I now know, because I'm old enough to know, grandmother knew that mommy was being mistreated. And because all, I mean, <laughs> there are too many mothers in this room, you, we all know. And I didn't know that grandmother knew, so we didn't talk about it for a while. But then I finally said to grandmother, you know, I really would like to live with you and grandpapa. And my grandfather's name is John Brown. And she said, well, I'll talk to John Brown. I also know now that John Brown is going to do what, what grandmother's going to do. I mean, it, 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 she was pretending, and it made him feel good, I guess. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, grandpapa was a good man, and so I ended up staying with them. And then I went to school and, you know, the yakka, the yakka, you live your life. But I was living in New York and beginning to write, actually, my first book, Black Feeling, Black Talk. And I'm in New York, and I get a call one evening, and it's mommy. And she said, you know, Nikki, your, your father is in the hospital. He had a stroke. And you know how you just take a minute to... Well, I knew she didn't call because she thought I cared, because the only thing that would have made me happy is if she had called and said Gus was dead. So I thought, okay, what is happening? Well, you let me be honest about that. Y'all don't know him, don't care, and he is dead. And <laughs> that's true. And so I thought, if she's calling me, it's not because of him, because she knows I don't care. So it has to be that she needs. So I said, well, I'm going to come on home. I'll be home. You know, I had a Volkswagen, and I had a son, and I had a dog. And I packed us up the next day and moved. I have a sister, and I mentioned she she's my old, was my older sister. And so Gary called, and she said, you know, how is everything? I said, well, Gus is in the hospital, and I'm on my way home. She said, well, if you need anything, call me. And I, to this day, Gary's sweet. She had issues, too, I guess. But to this day, I know that if somebody calls you, the answer isn't, if you need something, call me, because you know damn well they needed something or they wouldn't have called. <laughs> I mean, that's, so I went home, and going home was, it was good, because I used to tease mom, and I said, you know, girl, you should have married me, and it would have been, you know, different. And then she would say, well, baby, if I had married you, how would I have gotten you? Well, I now, of course, teach at Virginia Tech, which is one of our, I'm sure you know Virginia Tech, one of our better uh, engineering schools, among other things that we do very well. And I'm thinking what we have to do, and I say that to, my, to, to the people at Tech too, what we have to do is figure out a way to get the human egg out of the body and uh, uh, fertilized. And then we can figure out which egg is worth keeping and which egg is not, so that, for example, Donald Trump's egg, we just crack it, scratch it, and... <laughs> we wouldn't have to be bothered, you know, with what we're being bothered with now, because you get rid of that. And I gotta say this, because I don't want the men to think I'm picking on them, because I'm not really picking on them, but the best father on the planet and I know most of you know that, but the very best father on the planet is Father Penguin. Because he recognizes that when Mother Penguin lays that egg, he doesn't debate, is this my egg? Is this John's egg? Who's it? He sees the egg and he picks it up and he puts it in his pouch. And he and the other fathers, you just have to admire them, as winter is coming, go around so that they share the warmth. It's no bullshit from Father Penguin. They all keep going around and going around. So that when spring comes and the egg sometimes opens 
and sometimes Father Penguin realizes he has all winter taken care of an egg that cannot hatch, that's gone. And you have to admire Father Penguin of that because Father Human is full of shit most of the time because, <laughs> because they start, amen, are you sure, is somebody, Father Penguin doesn't do that. He says, I'm gonna take care of this and when the time comes that it is ready to hatch, I'll be here for it. And I'm sure Father Penguin must cry, he must be upset because he has worked to keep this, to make sure this egg grows. And we look now at what's happening with Father America and Father Black America is in watching him son and his sons be in jail and that ought to stop too. That that's your jail is just a business. It has nothing to do. But that's not about, I was talking about Gus because I wanted to read you this poem. Well, <laughs> Gus and I, it's just we didn't understand each other. I guess that's the term. I'm getting to be older and older. If I live another 10 years, maybe I'll understand him better. But he didn't die in the hospital, so we brought him home, <laughs> quite naturally. And we're sitting at home, and I'm thinking, this won't work. Because you know how you know something like I said, no, I got to get this Negro out of this house. <laughs> because if I don't, it'll be ugly. So I did what any other good daughter would do. I bought a house. And I said to Mommy, we're moving. And she said, oh, baby, we don't have, no, 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 no. Let me say this slow. We are moving. And so I bought a house and we moved. Now Gus was being upset with me. So he's having this, we're having coffee one morning and I don't know what we were arguing about. And he started telling me something and I said, Gus, <laughs> let, let me say this slow and you understand. The chair you are sitting in is my chair. The floor it is sitting on is my floor. So you can see the two of us, you know. So he's gonna get up because he's angry and he's gonna slip on his way into, I said, in the bedroom <laughs> you're going into, it's my bed, I bought that bed. The house you're in is my house. So let me tell you how the rest of your life is gonna run. This is easy. You're gonna wake up every morning and you're gonna smile and you're gonna tell that woman who was put up with you for 40 something years how happy you are to see her. And you're gonna say that you love her and whatever she puts in front of you to eat, you're gonna eat it and tell her it's good. Do you understand me? Because if you don't, I'm gonna put you in a, in a hospital that will make you, it's called, for those of us from Cincinnati, it's the old Longview. I said, it will make you so crazy. And he looked at me, I said, you know damn well I will. So he started waking up, honey, this is really, it worked, because you get sick of that. I say all of this to say, I never learned to cry. Because like a lot of women, and there are a lot of women in this room, people are always writing books and stuff and saying, women cry all the time, but we don't. Things happen and we hold it in, and we hold it in, and we hold it in. And so I never learned to cry, and eventually, and, and, and now it's been about five years, I had a seizure. And so I had a seizure, you know, and, and you go, well, thank God. It was Jenny that uh, I listened to two voices. One is Jenny, who's here with me today, and the other is my lawyer, Gloria, Gloria Haffer. And so I'm driving down 81, and Jenny calls, and something's wrong. She said, Nikki, turn around. So I just do whatever she says. I'm down 81, I just turn around, <laughs> and went to the hospital. It's a seizure. So my doctor, who is, he really is cute, and he really is sweet, and isn't it Gregory? And Gregory said, you know, you're having a seizure. And I, 
and I finally I'm getting, I said, Gregory, it's not a seizure. He, he says, you've had high blood pressure, and this is what, I said, Gregory, it's because I never learned to cry. And he said, that's not true. I said, Gregory, I am giving you a gift. <laughs> I have discovered a new disease, a new program, whatever you want to call it. People can now come to you, and you could look at them, and you can say, oh, don't worry, you have the Nikki. And people will start... <laughs> People will start to come to you, you'll be rich. <laughs> so Gregory wasn't sure, but I knew if I could learn to cry, I would feel better. And so I want to say that to all of us who are a little worried that we don't cry, because the worst things that happen to you, and somebody will say, oh, don't cry. Well, what the hell do they expect you to do? Your mother dies, your dog dies, your son gets run over. What? Of course you cry. And anybody that loves you say, of course you should cry. And everybody's going, oh, you know, it'll, it'll be all right. How's it going to be all right? You've lost something that's incredibly important. How's that going to be all right? And I will say that to the men, too, because the men end up with, with ulcers or hitting their wives because they are ashamed to cry. You ought to learn how to cry and get over these things. So I wrote a poem. <laughs> I married my mother. I know crying is a skill. I automatically wipe my eyes even though I know. Crying is a skill. Maybe I will learn, my mother did, when she thought I was asleep. I think my sister did, sleep. But sleep is as difficult to me as crying. I laugh easily and I smile and withhold any true feelings, except once I fell in love with my eighth grade teacher and spent most of my life trying to feel safe again. Though maybe I'm safe now, after almost after almost 30 years, which is as long as I lived with my mother. Maybe that's not a poem. Maybe that's something else. Maybe I just wanted to show my father that he needn't be cruel. Maybe I just enjoyed buying the house he had to live in, showing her she should have married me instead of him. Or maybe, since we will all soon be gone, I should be happy I found my mother and someone else who loves me. What else really matters? You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT, broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. In this episode, we bring you Nikki Giovanni's recent keynote presentation at the 41st annual Appalachian Writers Workshop in Hindman, Kentucky. When they said I was invited here, you know, this, uh, the whole settlement, as, as most of you know, the whole settlement uh, house situation is, is old. My grandmother went went to settlement house because my grandmother came here. I know Rosa Parks went to one of the settlement houses uh, right here. So when I was invited to be here, to come up here, I was in incredibly happy. First of all, I love grandmother. Louvenia was, was, was quite incredibly wonderful. <laughs> my grandmother, <laughs> by the way, for all of us who are old and don't hear well, I went and got a hearing aid. I deserve a hand on that. Because people are always like, oh, I don't want to hear anything. You wear, uh, you have glasses, you wear false teeth, you wear girdles, you do a whole bunch of things, but I don't want to hear anything. Well, you can't hear. And if you can't hear, you know, you're going to end up with uh, dementia. And that's one of the things that leads to dementia because your, your brain falls asleep. I don't know if you know that. If not, I've done, I've done my job today. I'll go away. But, uh, <laughs> 
I'm working on getting, getting used to it. It got caught in my glasses. And I think it's pretty cool to be able to actually hear um, <laughs> most, of the t most of the time. My grandmother, I just want to say this for grandmother, because there's, there's a grandmother in the room, and we're all very proud of our grandmothers. But my grandmother, mother, not that anybody's a grandmother isn't, but grandmother was a pretty woman. And grandpapa fell in love with her. They call it, what, what Nat King Cole said, you call it magic, but I call it love. I learned earlier that falling in love is not exactly what grandpapa had in mind. But grandpapa was married, and so grandmother wouldn't. Now, I'm living with them as I shared. It's too funny. I mean, I think it's funny. So we had a small house, but now that I'm there, grandmother would cook dinner, but she told John Brown a long time ago, I don't mind cooking John Brown, but I'm not washing the dishes. So grandpapa, being a good man, washed dishes. Well, when I came, now I'm going to have to wash the dishes. But he would sit in the, in the, the kitchen is here and the living room is, or the dining room is here and the living room is there, dining room is here. And every now and then he said, you know, Nikki, I only wanted to kiss your grandmother. And I don't care where grandmother was in the house, any part of the house, she could always say, John Brown, if I had let you kiss me, you would have never married me. And it, it I, I, I didn't know what to do about that, I thought. <laughs> you know, you just, I kiss her every night, why wouldn't, why would that happen? It took me the longest to realize that that was a metaphor. <laughs> so grandpapa had to get a divorce and, and he married grandmother, but he wouldn't let grandmother go to the market. And that was the other thing. Every Saturday, grandpapa went to the market. And I would say, you know, grandmother, why don't we go to the market with the grandmother? She said, John Brown won't let me go to the market. Grandmother was pretty. And this was during the age, as you know, of segregation. And if grandpapa had let grandmother, this is Knoxville, Tennessee, when Gay Street had that market. If grandpapa had let grandmother go, in all fairness, and I'm not picking on the white men, some white man would have said something. And he would say, you know, Nikki, if I let your grandmother go to the market, somebody will say something. Then I'll have to go up and shoot them. Then they'll come back and lynch me. And it'll be ugly. Then buildings will burn down. And I'm like, <laughs> so it took me the longest to understand that, but she, didn't, she never did. And when he could no longer walk up to the market, then she would send me and she would say, don't talk to anybody, which I did. And the person that I knew, the person I knew best was the chicken man who would say, are you, are you Louvenia Watson's granddaughter? And I'd say, yes, sir, because that's what you're supposed to do. And he would give, give me chicken livers and I would bring him back. It was really cool. But when grandpapa would come back, the one thing that would happen, I just share, this is about nothing, except maybe you've had, the one thing that would happen, vanilla ice cream is supposed to be what? Vanilla. That's what it's supposed to be. You crack the egg, you do it, and you turn it, and that's ice cream. And grandmother loved pineapple ice cream. So as she, he would come back from the, from the market, I would keep my fingers crossed. And then he would say, because he was always so pleased with that, Louvenia, they had pineapple. And I didn't know to go, oh, but that's what I was. Because I knew my ice cream was going to be ruined. And she was going, well, I don't like, I still don't like pineapple ice cream. <laughs> I don't know what pineapples are good for, but it's not ice cream. <laughs> but these are the sort of things, you all have memories also that you want to share. Somebody is here from Cincinnati, I know, because I was just talking to her. And I wanted to, I want to share a particular poem. I'm a blues person. I, I grew up loving, I love jazz, but I love the blues. And there was a blues singer, there is a blues singer, her name is Big Maybell. And thank you. Big Maybell is, was the best. 
And there is, uh, and I'm not, this is not race, but one of the nicest white people on earth is Bonnie Raitt. And she is. And I don't know Miss Raitt. I've never had the pleasure of meeting her. And if I ever do, the one thing that I want to thank her for is the steps that she took to help the blues singers get their money back. Because anytime you see a blues song and it says, Arthur, unknown, you know that that's somebody black they stole it from. You, you get so... Well, there's a lot of things about some white people you get sick of, and that's one of them. And you saw that, that uh, which is really, I just have to mention that. You saw that uh, California has that $300 billion, whatever it is, lottery. When black people would play what is now called the lottery, it was called policy or the numbers. Some of you are old enough to remember the numbers. And you'd play a quarter, and you could win something. And then white people decided, oh, if they're going to do that, we're going to take it away and we'll make it illegal, which they did. So and then you couldn't play policy anymore. You couldn't play your numbers anymore. You couldn't gamble anymore. And then when all of the black people couldn't gamble anymore, the white people decided, okay, now we'll call it a lottery and we'll give it to the state and that's what's going on. And we'll have all of the white people deciding that they should, you know, gamble and everybody's happy. And you wonder sometimes why black people are mad at white people. That'd be one big, big reason. <laughs> and you see what's happening with marijuana. You see what's that? Black people have been smoking marijuana forever, and it's been illegal. And then all of a sudden, some white people go, hmm, this might be helpful. Next thing you know. <laughs> you know it's true. You get sick of that crap. And it's just, it's not fair. It, it, well, that'd be a whole nother discussion. <laughs> I used to have a boyfriend, or I had a boyfriend, I guess, and his name was Nate. And I wanted to read this because I'm a blues fan. And Nate ran policy, he did gambling, he did a bunch of things. I don't know why, and I have no way of knowing and never will now, I don't know why mommy trusted Nate because as far as I could see, you know how you think things through, Nate was untrustworthy. I knew that, <laughs> I knew that he was a gambler, I knew that he did illegal things, and I, I just didn't know why mommy thought he was okay, but he always took care of me. So he came by, I mean we were friends, he, I was his date. And he came by one day and he said to mommy, you know, have, a, have a, a, a prize for Nikki, can I take her to a nightclub? Well, I was just about 16, and at that point, I wore dresses. I haven't worn dresses in so long, I wouldn't know what to do with it. But I wore dresses and I wore high heels, right? So I thought of myself as being grown. And mommy said yes, because we found out Big Maybell is gonna to come to Newport. For those of you who know Cincinnati, Cincinnati had the clean money, Newport had the dirty money. And so I could get dressed up and I'm going to Newport, Kentucky, right? And of course, uh, let me read the point because there's a couple of things in there that happened. The nightclubs in Newport were joints. I don't know, some of you might be old enough to remember joints, but they weren't cafes, they weren't nightclubs like we know them, they were joints. The room was dark, dank actually. It was, after all, Newport, Kentucky, preserver of sin and soul. My boyfriend, whom my parents trusted, though Nate did not deserve their trust, was taking me to a nightclub. George Ratterman would be sheriff one day and close Covington and Newport down, and Cincinnati would suffer. Cincinnati had the clean money, the living room, Mark Murphy, Les McCann, the mighty Amanda Ambrose, fresh from Chicago, Newport had the blues and gambling, though the biggest gamble was probably with your life. I wore high heels then and dresses just above my knees. I drank gin fizzes because, let's admit it, gin is not a drink. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nate said, I have a treat, so mommy let me go to a bar that was dark, down dank steps, where I coolly walked in with one of the gamblers who everybody knew. We could see through the back before the performers came to the mic. The stage jingled and candy was belted out. I called my sugar candy and there she was. Two tons of incredible womanhood balanced on stiletto heels, wrapped in a black silk dress talking about her candy. And I, who was born in Knoxville, Tennessee, met one of Tennessee's greatest gifts to the world, the girl from Chattanooga. Shake it, baby, shake it. This woman would never sell Girl Scout cookies or be seen collecting for diabetes. She would never make calls for crippled children somewhere in Africa, nor head up the blood drive, no, in her hometown, no. She'd be leaning over the back fence in a man's pair of house slippers with a cigarette just sort of dangling between her lips, laughing, laughing, laughing. Yes, ma'am, this was Big Maybell. I stamped and screamed and shouted, shake it, Sister Maybell, gone, girl, shake that thing. <laughs> I love that. She's a. Let me find. She she was a. She was quite well. The blues is so important. It's so are spirituals, but the blues were well. The blues and the spirituals came together. I am. Uh, I want to. I want to find it. I will say this if nobody else has said this for this workshop. Whatever you do, don't remember your poems. Because if you remember your poems, you'll try to make sure that you don't contradict yourself. If you're not willing to contradict yourself, you will spoil whatever creativity you have because you'll always be trying to balance. So if you just forget it and go on, and somebody said, well, didn't you say that? that that's not the point. The point that you want is, this is what I'm doing today, that's what I did yesterday. And so if nobody has mentioned that, I just want to, I want to be the one to mention that to you because it's, it's so important. Otherwise you get, I think that one of the reasons most of the singers, and you, you, you know a lot with singers, a lot of the singers go crazy. You've seen a lot of them, a lot of them you know, commit suicide, a lot of them do drugs, a lot of them do other, a bunch of other things. The reason that they do is that they sing the same song and then the audience insists that they sing the same way. And if you're doing that, it's gonna make you crazy because one time you're gonna look around and it's gonna be 15 years you're singing the same damn song the same damn way. And you're gonna wonder, why am I doing this? Which is why the jazz singers do better than the regular R&B singers. Have you noticed R&B singers are always dropping dead someplace? <laughs> they are, but the jazz singers, because they keep changing things around, changing things around. And somebody said, well, you didn't play it that way last time. And of course, the jazz singers say, you and going about this. <laughs> they do. The only way to live is, is to do it the way you want to do it and to keep it fresh in your mind so that you are staying awake and aware. And I know that that's true of poems. So if you're looking at me, why am I looking for my poems? It's because I don't remember them. And then I, ha I want to tell you the story that I remember about how that poem got written so that some of you have things that you want to say that you want to write about. Am I making? And so as you begin your writing careers, as you start to, and some of us are, are my age in this room, very few, I think I'm one of the oldest people in the room, but some of us are my age and you have memories and there are stories that you want to tell, tell them. And then you think about it and you say, oh, I forgot. Well, whatever it is that you forgot, tell, tell it another way. Don't correct what you did because there's no such thing as a mistake. There's only, I can go further. 
I'm a, Tennessee, I'm a native Tennessean. I was born there. During the age of segregation, when you couldn't go to the same amusement park or the same movie theater, when the white guys would cruise up and down the streets and call out to you, when the black guys were afraid of being lynched. But we went to church each Sunday and we sang a precious song and we found a way not to survive, anything can survive, but to thrive and believe and hope. I'm a native Tennessean, I was born there, but I was only two months old when my mother and father moved my sister and me to Cincinnati during the age of segregation, when Dow drugstores wouldn't serve us, when the neighborhoods were redlined, but at least mommy could get a job teaching and daddy could get a job behind a desk. And after all, if you are a college graduate, that's the least you can expect. Though the Pullman porters took us south each summer and watched over us with an, with an unfailing faith and got us from there to here. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. I was born there, in the only state in rebellion that didn't have to undergo reconstruction, in the volunteer state that sent as many from one side as another, in an area where if I just have to have a car breakdown, I would prefer any holler to any city neighborhood, but there was no work and no way, and the chronic angers that flared would chase us to Ohio. We were not Liza crossing the river, just four people, two in love and two who were loved, who needed to put the rest to the rage, but the rage stayed and someone had to go. I chose me, but I was born there, so the going was the coming. I'm a native Tennessean. I take no joy in Davy Crockett nor Jim Bowie. They were wrong to be at the Alamo. They were wrong to fight for the theft. I loved James Adji. I loved Thunder Road, though I, a native Tennessean, was not allowed to play a bit part when the crew came to town to film the movie. Ingrid Bergman and Anthony Quinn came to take a walk in the spring rain. And despite it all, I like Andrew Jackson, and at least he knew the big guys were wrong. I'm a native Tennessean. I graduated Fisk University in Nashville. I know that the freedmen paid for that school. Nobody gave them anything, pennies and nickels and prayer and determination. The freedmen paid for it, and many others. I know that the American Missionary Society took the money the Jubilee Singers made to save Fisk and used it for other purposes. I know the American Missionary Society was wrong. I was educated by the singers of those songs. I love those songs. How could I not love Nashville? How could I not love Dinah Shore, who invited the Jubilee Singers to sing at the Grand Ole Opry, then had to hear the rumors. She sang on, sang until she saw the USA in her Chevrolet. Mwah. I once saw her on a plane. I was going to the cabin. She was in first class. I said, hey. She smiled and said, hey, back. When I got Georgia on my mind, I rode the Chattanooga Choo Choo to Lookout Mountain. I saw Memphis and was enchanted, from the mighty Mississippi gracefully turning all red to Bell Street Beats at midnight. All those blues from so many bloods decided to turn my blues to Memphis gold. W.C. Handy, Bobby Blue Bland, B.B. King, the late, great Johnny Ace, stacks and stacks of music, American music, the Athens of the South held Tennessee music, but Memphis put the tears to the lonely and crossed over. Everybody wants to rock to my rhythm. I am Memphis. I heard the shots that killed Martin. I know who killed the king. I'm a native Tennessean. I know what it is to be free. I am singing the country blues. I am whittling a wooden doll. I am underground mining coal. I am running moonshine. I am a white boy with a banjo, native to West Africa. I'm a black boy with a twang, native to the hills. I am smart. I am cool. I'm unafraid. I am free. Yeah, I'm a native Tennessean. <laughs> When God made mountains, 
He made runaway slaves with no book knowledge of the North Star, nor botany classes describing moss on the north side of trees. He made black men and women unafraid of mountain lions and Florida panthers, and no matter what Teddy, no matter what Teddy Roosevelt tried to say, bears do not try to show, bears do not like people, not the cuddly little koala, not the fierce grizzly, not the mighty polar, nor the humble mountain black bear. All bears and their dens are to be avoided. God did make the jackrabbit who could be snared. God made the possum who was slow. God made the clever raccoon and rivers sweet with fish. He made berries and nuts and green leafy things which were safe and good to eat. When God made runaway slaves, he knew they would need a friend, not only in nature, but of a human kind. So he sent mountaineers. He sent white people who would not be a slave nor own one, who would not kill a slave holder nor die for one. He sent free white men, and white men who believed in change and a free white woman who believed in him. And they made their home amid these mighty mountains. They liked to have a drink or two, so they welcomed Johnny Appleseed, who brought stories and fermented Applejack. They liked heroes, so they welcomed the traveling preacher with his message of a man who has trampled out the, out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. They liked to sing, so they welcomed the runaway slave with his banjo and friendships were, were formed. When God made mountains, he made men and women who would need each other who would respect each other, who would carry the word so that all men and women could be saved. When God made mountains, he said, come unto me, ye who need rest. And they called it Appalachia, the original word for peace. And some folks, some folks said, this cannot be done. And the rest said, yes, we can. And the clouds settled in that welcome place between ground and trees and sky, like smoke coming off a coffee pot, like steam coming from a kettle of pinto beans, like the rustic smell of a wood, of a wood burning fire at day's end, at home and at peace, like God has a rocking chair in the sky smoking his pipe and being proud of his great smoky mountains. Thank you. There's a, there's just, we have so many great stories here that we remember, and some are sad and some are, are, are happy. But I say it all the time, if, I, if my car had to break down, I would prefer any holler to any city neighborhood, because you know that, that these people, are, you know, Pa, somebody's car broke down, I'd be right there, Ma. And she would offer you, yeah, she would offer you a glass. Well, these are great people. And I really hate it, and, and I know that some of us probably made the mistake of voting for Donald Trump, and I'm not here to do politics particularly today, but we know that we cannot let haters and fools like Trump take away our relationships because we have gotten along for a couple of hundred years, and we just can't let somebody take that away from us and, and make hatreds and fools out of us just because they are. So I just thought I would. I have a, a friend who's 95, I believe now, and uh, he's a sweetheart. He just had a birthday, and one of the things we, we did, he called me one day as one of those, I'm gonna see if I can find, he's um, uh, a great illustrator, and so for every thing that an illustrator has won, Ashley Bryan has won it. And it, uh, it's not this, what I'm looking for is not in here. 
Ashley said to me, you know, he, he talks to one of those, darling, why don't you send me some poems and we'll make a book? And so my answer to Ashley, I mean, he's Ashley Bryan and I'm not. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> yes, you know. And I sent it, and I said, well, Ashley, what are we gonna call it? Because I had something else in mind. He said, oh, I'll name it. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you who write poetry, let me say this. If you're ever working with an illustrator, the one thing you must know is that you are not important. <laughs> I just wanted you to know that in case nobody else has, has mentioned that. When we got the book, Ashley named the book, it's called I Am Loved. And he liked that, I like it, so I said, whatever you want, Ashley. And he's done, you can see he's done a beautiful job. The kids, their favorite poem in here, actually. I wanted to share this with you. Their favorite poem is I Am a Mirror. And the kids have just, have just loved that. And there's another one called Do the Rosa Parks. And everybody, the kids just think, oh, this is fun, and they've, they've enjoyed it. So he did, and I'm, I'm, glad that, that, uh, I'm glad that he did. It's been a pleasure working with him. And he's 95, and what worries us all now is that he's got three books that he's working on. The difference between Ashley and me is I have three books I'm working on. His three books are physically coming along. My three books are in my head, so you can see where we're going. So it's not that I'm late, it's that you know, if Jenny doesn't whip me or something, I'll never get them done. But the one thing I think that all of the old ladies, I, I, I don't, again, I'm not speaking against the gentleman, but one thing that all of the old ladies do is, is there's a comfort. And being a, a, a black American, the one thing that I don't, I don't even know what the words are gonna be. Now, slavery was not a good idea, and nobody's gonna think it was, I'm not a fool. But as we were kidnapped in, in, in West Africa and sold, you have to realize Europeans didn't start slavery, they participated. And so there's another level of slavery that has to be dealt with because everybody wants to say, oh, the white people did it. The white people participated, but black people did it too. So it's a lot going on, and now we got those children a couple of thousand children that we are sending someplace doing something with. And let me speak as a woman for a minute, just two minutes, and, and, and I apologize for this. They put the teenage girl, the, the, the 12, 13-year-old girls, they're putting them in with the infants, and they're taking the diapers out as if the kids' diapers, the kids have spoiled the diapers. But when you're 12, 11, 12, 13 years old, you're starting what we would call your period. And the one thing that about your period is that everybody, when you get your period, for those who are gentlemen, you don't have this, I don't believe. But I know that the girls, I don't know what they do when they get their first erection. I don't know if people, I don't know what people do. Oh, congratulations, I don't know. But I know when you, when you get your first period, you need your mother or your aunt or your older sister to tell you this is what it is, this is how we dealt with them, we're so proud of you, and to embrace you. And we need you to have some level of privacy. As every woman in this room knows who's grown, when you have your napkin or your tampon, you pay tax on it. When you have Viagra, you don't. What kind of sense does that make? And we've got these children now that, and I dislike Donald Trump for a lot of reasons. I don't want to get myself into that because it'll be a longer thing. But we know that something awful is happening to those girls. We know that. We, we, we know that you just don't get lost and nobody can find their way back, the, the, these poor children. And I wrote 
a poem some time ago because I think, well, I don't think, I'm, I'm 75. So you have to say to yourself, okay, you're 75. If I get lucky, what, 10 years? I mean, who, who, who knows? And, and you can't look at your life like how much longer will I live, but only how well will I live that I'm here. I wrote a poem because I love, I love to think of whatever it is that I did my job. And I think that's all any of us can think. And I wrote a poem called Quilts because I write about quilts a lot. Like a fading piece of cloth, I am a failure. No longer do I cover tables filled with food and laughter. My seams are frayed, my hems failing. My strength will no longer hold, my strength no longer able to hold the hot and cold. I wish for those first days when, just woven, I could keep water from seeping through, repel stains with the tightness of my weave, dazzle the sunlight with my reflection. I grow old, though pleased with my memories. The task I can no longer complete are balanced by the love of the task gone past. I offer no apology, only this plea. When I am frayed and stained and drizzled at the end, please someone, cut a square and put me in a quilt that I might keep some child warm and some old person with no one else to talk to will hear my whispers and cuddle near. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring renowned poet Nikki Giovanni at the 41st annual Appalachian Writers Workshop at the Heinemann Settlement School. Music on this episode features Jenny Hawker and Kay Justice with Tracy Schwartz, doing a tune called The Touch of Her Hand, recorded at Apple Shop's June Apple Records. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at www.wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk on SoundCloud or Stitcher. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio. With her hand in mine and our hearts Sad.